Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Hi, Brian Lehrer here. Up next, Brian Lehrer Weekend. Three of our favorite segments from the week packaged together for you to listen to on the weekend. So enjoy, and I'll see you back on the radio Monday at 10 a.m. on WNYC and WNYC.org. WNYC. Now, a closer look at Mayor Eric Adams' new proposal for a Department of Sustainable Delivery for New York City. Department of Sustainable Delivery. Can the mayor and city council work together to tame the Wild West e-bike and moped free-for-all we now have on New York City streets and sidewalks? that's making many people feel unsafe and is causing some actual grievous harm? Can they tame the two-wheelers while respecting and supporting the delivery workers who depend on them and maybe even make their jobs and their vehicles safer for them? Does sustainable mean more climate-friendly too? And this isn't just about, say, Grubhub and Uber Eats. New Yorkers get so many packages delivered these days, so there's even an idea in there for trucks to stop at certain boundary points and have packages delivered those final blocks to your door using cargo bikes in parts of the city. A lot of people don't even know what a cargo bike is. We'll talk about that. Um, those, those would change the mix of vehicles on the city streets yet again. We can at least say that. Here's the mayor in his State of the City address last week unveiling the idea. We cannot have mopeds speeding down our sidewalks and forcing people to jump out of the way. We must also protect the drivers and delivery workers who show up for New Yorkers at all times of day and night, all kinds of weather. That is why we are in discussion with the city council to create the Department of Sustainable Delivery, a first-in-the-nation entity that will regulate new forms of delivery transit and ensure their safety. So we'll explore the potential implications of a New York City Department of Sustainable Delivery now with John Sirico, a journalist, teacher, and researcher who focuses on issues of mobility, sustainability, and open space. Among other things, he's a regular contributor to Bloomberg City Lab and an adjunct professor at NYU's Arthur L. Carter Journalism Institute and writes a newsletter called Street Beat. John, thanks for coming on. Welcome to WNYC. Thanks so much for having me, Brian. Is the mayor proposing a new city department that would have a commissioner, that sort of thing? Yeah, so like the most immediate action uh, that that is going to come out of this is going to be another task force uh, where the hope is that they'd gather the, the app-based companies that so many of these delivery workers are working for, uh, representatives of delivery workers, uh, transit advocates, uh, you know, city council members, city hall to all come together and really create the framework of what this department would look like. And I really I think to your point uh, with your introduction, you really got at how complex this issue is uh, and how many different sides there are to this issue. And I think they're going to really try to figure out how to get this right. Yeah, well, I mean, I can say just speaking personally, I know I don't cross the street the same way I did five years ago. 
right? Yeah. I used to basically look out for cars in the street that might be driving against the light, and that was about it. Now I'm looking both ways crossing a one-way street because the micro-mobility vehicles don't care about one-way streets. And I look for those vehicles, you know, blasting through red lights at, frankly, a much higher frequency than cars do. At least that's the way it looks to me. Is that my imagination? No, I would say this is so interesting because it's something that, you know, I'm a, I'm a regular cyclist myself and I talk to my most progressive of friends, my, you know, the people who are cycling every day. And even they complain about this kind of general sense of disorder on the streets that's really come about these five, uh, five to six past years. You know, I think this is just a classic case of the technology really getting ahead of policymaking, right? Uh, these innovations kind of landed on our streets, much like Uber and Lyft did you know, 10 years ago, mm -hmm. and the city's really trying to keep up. I mean, we're seeing this with the lithium-ion battery regulations. We're seeing this with now wider bike lanes to really, for the city to really catch up to this really rapidly changing technology. Is there a way to know the actual harm as opposed to the feeling of harm from all this? We get lots of calls from New Yorkers who feel unsafe with the use of mopeds and e-bikes and scooters on sidewalks and breaking other traffic rules. But it's interesting, in the polarized city debate about micro-utility vehicles, and you know this, defenders say there's no data that shows they are a danger to pedestrians like cars are. But advocates for more regulation and enforcement, and full disclosure, a friend of mine is one of those advocates after her life was dramatically and permanently altered after being hit by one such vehicle driving illegally. Those advocates say the data are obscured because the categories the city keeps aren't clear enough to distinguish those accidents from those that are uh, car-caused. So my question is, do you know if the city has a way of really counting those incidents and their harm so that can inform how much regulation is needed. So I would say right now what exists is not a great system, right? So it either has to be reported directly to the NYPD if it gets reported at all, um, and you have situations where it might just be kind of a hit-and-run situation where there's you know either no reporting or nothing that comes of it. Also, you're kind of directly sometimes interfacing with the app-based companies, not necessarily with a car driver, right, or an insurance company. You know, when I spoke with Mira Joshi, the deputy mayor of operations, who really, you know, um, helped inspire this idea, given her time at, at the Taxi Limousine Commission, which we could talk about a little later, you know, she talked about how these, these data sets are kind of all over the place right now. Uh, and one thing that this department would really focus on is getting all this data from places like Uber Eats, Grubhub, Seamless, all these companies, and really try to figure out, you know, how often are our, our drivers, our riders going the wrong way? How often are they going the wrong way down a one-way street or going through the red lights? Uh, they, it would really give them the ability to, to kind of collate this data and make decisions based on this data right now. That really is kind of left to private companies to, to, kind, of, uh, to kind of obtain and have. But I don't understand because people who are hurt, certainly people who are killed, but even people who are hurt if they're hit by one of these vehicles, presumably there would be a police report in a lot of those cases. So they'd be able to see some numbers. Yes. Um, I mean, I see you wrote an article on Curbed in December. Yeah. 
headlined, it was one of the deadliest years for cyclists in New York City, but pedestrian traffic deaths are reaching historic lows. So getting worse for bicyclists, better for pedestrians. But what's going on? What are some of those numbers? And do we know about pedestrian deaths or injuries from micromobility vehicles? Is there a number? So specifically when it gets to a point where it's where it's so dramatic like it's a you know a fatality then that's something that of course goes to the nypd or we have a very serious injury but i think when you speak with cyclists and pedestrians it's really the 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 kind of near miss that happens so regularly that's not being reported right then this is kind of fomenting this this feeling of sense of disorder you know as as kind of it relates to vision zero uh one of the kind of more interesting data points that comes from that is that one of the biggest kind of dramatic increases in cyclist deaths have been from e-bikes uh, particularly because my kind of sense through the reporting is that they're going at faster speed. So what would normally be just an injury is becoming a death because of the speed. So it's something that DOT really kind of repeats over and over the city agency that says, this is really uh, something that we're seeing in the data that didn't exist five years ago. Um, and it's something that they're, they're kind of hyper-focused on is that could be drawing up the cyclist deaths because we're kind of in this really strange period where, we're seeing a safety for pedestrians, even if you know it's hard to believe. I think one of the first lines of my story was that it's hard to believe. Um, right. But at the same time, we're having this kind of bizarro kind of uh, world for cyclists that looks very different. So is that to say that these e-bike injuries and deaths, and I think I saw, saw a stat um, that said out of 36 bicyclist deaths last year, 30 were riding e-bikes. Uh, so if that stat is right, are those just e-bikes having a one-vehicle crash, or is that e-bikes and cars colliding, and because the e-bikes are going faster than regular pedal bikes, um, the injuries are more grievous? Typically the latter. So this is a crash with a, with a car, overwhelmingly so. Yeah. Uh, so one could argue it's still the cars through Better Vision Zero policies. Uh, yes, that yes. need to be more regulated. Uh, but still, while recognizing that there is additional danger if you're riding an e-bike uh, and going above a certain speed. So far, Absolutely. all right, listeners, I'm going to put out the phone number because many of you are calling in already and I want everybody to have a shot. Uh, do you like the mayor's idea of creating a Department of Sustainable Delivery? And what do you think such a department should or shouldn't do? 212-433-WNYC, 212-433-9692. For our guest, John Sirico, who studies this kind of thing and teaches at NYU and writes for Bloomberg City Lab, among other places, call or text 212-433-WNYC. I want to make sure to get the delivery workers point of view and aspect into this. So far, I've read that Uber as a company is supportive of this initiative, which might surprise people, and delivery workers are suspicious. Is that your take so far on who likes and doesn't like this idea of regulating uh, what we call micromobility vehicles in new ways? Absolutely. You know, I think, you know, rightfully so, delivery workers are coming from a history where uh, things really didn't change until the pandemic, where New Yorkers really felt like delivery workers were the frontline workers that were kind of coming through the pandemic, 
bringing food, going through the kind of worst of situations to really help people, bringing medical supplies, food, things like that. But before that, I think it's hard to remember now where, you know, e-bikes and mopeds were being were being heavily enforced on the streets. It was illegal up until a couple of years ago. So they have that in their memory of of persecution. And I think rightfully so when they hear a new government entity, uh, especially when a, a, a fair share of the workforce is undocumented, um, it could be very scary to hear that because that could mean more enforcement, that could mean more bureaucracy, more regulation. Um, I think in the kind of responses that have come from delivery workers since then, there's a mix of that, but also, you know, there is a very real fear around the battery fires. There is a real fear about labor exploitation. Uh, and these are issues that the department would try to take on. You mentioned um, the fact that many of the workers in this field are undocumented. And I see that uh, Deputy Mayor Joshi, who you mentioned that you spoke to recently, um, who's working on this new department idea, was quoted saying they might require IDs for all delivery drivers once this department gets going. But since many are undocumented, um, you know, there would probably resistant, be resistance to that, even though the quote I saw said, well, maybe it would be the the city IDs, not a like a driver's license ID from the state, yes. the city IDs, which were created specifically for undocumented immigrants to have some form of, of legal ID. Yes. And I, I think this kind of mirrors there's been this ongoing debate over a city council bill sponsored by uh, council member Rob Holden um, to to register every e-bike on the city on the city streets. And this is something that has really divided the transit advocacy community because they believe this would lead to persecution or enforcement, uh, while others would say this would help kind of, you know, rein in uh, the kind of sense of disorder we've discussed. Um, it kind of mirrors that ongoing debate between classification and registration uh, and what's the right approach there. Um, you know, I, again, Josh, Mira Joshi's coming back from her days from TLC, where this commission was created 40 years ago to really start doing that sort of regulation for taxi drivers, which, at the, you know, in the early 1970s was a similar wild, wild west to what's going on now in terms of lots of different taxi companies kind of came into New York City and were competing. Uh, and the TLC was kind of came from that time to create a standardized approach, uh, which is why I think you have companies like Uber cheering on something like this proposal. Listener texts, regulate and insurance for all motorized bikes, then data can be obtained. Tim in Manhattan wants to raise a fundamental question about an underlying premise in this whole conversation and this whole topic. Tim, that's you. Go. Oh. Go for it, Tim. Yes, Brian, I'm on the air. You, yes, you are on the air. Don't get nervous. Brian, right now I'm calling you from the snowy Catskill Mountains, but my wife and I live and work in Manhattan, in Greenwich Village. We have been riding our bicycles day in and day out, year-round, on the streets of Manhattan, and we today literally have never felt less safe on our human-powered bicycles. And my question is, why, post-pandemic, do we continue to refer to delivery as an essential service? I, I'll give you one glaring example. We live on West 12th Street, Murray's Bagels, right around the corner. I witnessed a guy on a moped, a gas-powered moped, no helmet, no plates, going down 6th Avenue, taking a left onto West 12th Street, 
and I saw a young, able-bodied man come bounding down his stoop to accept the small paper bag that had a bagel in it. So, right. in, in, this, in what is arguably the easiest big city in the United States in which to walk and bike, to shop and dine out, why are so many adults not getting dressed, going outside, shopping and dining in their neighborhoods and instead picking up their phones and having someone bring it to them from around the corner. Uh, John, have you thought about that underlying premise and has it changed that much since the pandemic and not gone back, even though now people are not afraid to go to their grocery store? Yeah. I mean, there's kind of a larger existential question about New Yorkers getting out and about and going to get their, 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 you know, what they need for their everyday kind of existence. But, you know, a lot of New Yorkers can't do that, right? Either they can't walk, they have mobility issues. Um, you know, I think we really see uh, the kind of strength and value of this of this industry, especially during snowstorms or really horrible weather events uh, when they're still out there delivering food to people. Um, you know, I think, you know, to the to the caller's point, I think one thing that that kind of it does touch upon is our addiction to delivery, right? And I think right. Brian, you really mentioned this at the offset, which is we've just become this completely, you know, delivery addicted city. And I think this is something that's we're seeing around the world, of course. Um, and I and I don't see that shifting anytime soon. And you know, personally, um, as a as a New Yorker who hears the kind of e-bikes and mopeds outside every day. I'd much prefer to hear that than huge delivery trucks every day going down my street. Uh, and it's something that, you know, transit advocates do argue that this this industry could help take those trucks off the street that we know really yeah. neighborhoods are super dangerous and all those things. And um, so it's become this industry that is kind of pivotal to New York City and the industry here, but also, you know, um, something that we got to really figure out how to make it work in the, in the kind of environment we have. And it's not just New York City. And Tim, thank you for your call from the Snowy Catskills. Call us again, whether you're in the city or not. Um, it's, you know, nationally, uh, and again, I think the pandemic changed the degree of it, the amount that yeah. people order from Amazon or a million other places and get packages delivered to their door, not just, let's say, food and things from around the corner. Um, and this is... There's actually another part of this uh, Eric Adams Department of Sustainability blueprint that addresses that. And I'm curious to get your take on this because this part hasn't been discussed as much. Uh, and that's the use of cargo bikes. And you can explain what a cargo bike is because a lot of people don't know. That sure. would replace the trucks on the last whatever it is, few blocks to people's doors so that the city streets don't get as clogged with trucks as they've been getting um, since the beginning of the pandemic. Because a lot of that package ordering, as opposed to shopping in stores, also has not gone away. Yeah, uh, this is such an important kind of part of the formula, too, especially as Manhattan uh, kind of sees the advent of congestion pricing, where a lot of companies are going to really have to figure this out if they don't want to pay the $15 toll or whatever it's going to be um, every day. So... You know, you kind of touched upon it. Uh, this is really the world of last mile deliveries, which is this idea of the big truck comes into New York City, has all of your goods. But instead of that truck going to every single house and delivering things, you know, they they move them onto smaller vehicles to do that last mile delivery from the kind of distribution center to your front door. 
this could be in the form of cargo bikes, which really are our e-bike, um, you know, with a kind of haul on it. You see this with a kind of boxes behind the e-bike. Mm -hmm. um, this can be done on the e-bikes e and mopeds we see today. Are they um, wide, wide like a pickup truck or something? Yeah, they're a bit wider. They're a bit wider and there's some regulations there about how wide they can be. Um, but they have a kind of larger haul. So, you know, this is this was kind of the justification or reason that the city gave when they recently widened bike lanes on on Third Avenue and 10th Avenue, uh, because uh -huh. there's these wider halls that would really uh -huh. be able to carry a decent amount of goods. Acacia in Williamsburg, you're on WNYC. Hello, Acacia. Hi, full disclosure, I am an e-cargo bike rider. I oh, have wow. two kids, two and four, and we ride our e-cargo bike from Greenpoint to the East Village for school every morning. Um, you mean your your have, car your cargo is your children? Yes, yeah, <laughs> my yeah. cargo is my children, <laughs> and sometimes our dog. Uh, but what I don't understand is we have the largest police force. We have they're on every corner. We have so much money. I mean, you know, give or take, um, and we have the laws on the books. Why isn't the laws? Why aren't they being enforced? Like, what are we paying them to do? They could be, they're walking down the block. They could see an e-bike with a bad battery and be like, hey, guy, that battery's bad. I got one in my trunk. Let's switch it out for you. Like, we have the manpower. I don't yeah. know why we, we don't do it. Why are we yeah. creating new administrations? I like the, the delivery thing, but, like, <laughs> other than that, it baffles my mind. Thank you very much. Okay, so if, I don't know if you can really see a bad lithium-ion battery just by looking at one. But on the other parts, the, uh, you know, the Wild West traffic patterns with the micro-mobility vehicles, e-bikes, mopeds, scooters, um, um, why do they need a new department? The listener is asking, why not just enforce the traffic laws? That's a great question. Um, you know, this is really the kind of argument that the city, that city hall has been making where, you know, just as you explained it with the NYPD, all these responsibilities are being done by a different agency right now. So currently, as it stands, um, the Department of Consumer and Worker Protection is responsible for labor regulation. So this is the most recent minimum wage rule for, for app-based workers, bathroom access, all these kind of labor protections that sit, the city's put in place to make sure these, these delivery workers aren't exploited, but also lithium-ion batteries. However, when you're reading the news about lithium-ion batteries, you're probably hearing about the FDNY handling it, not DCWP. Um, however, you know if you have a traffic inf uh, infraction with the, with someone who's on a delivery moped, it's probably the NYPD, even though it's DOT who is responsible for creating the street design. So you have all these different entities that are kind of touching this one point, which makes it so complex. And you know the city's kind of argument is that as a result, we can't really regulate this current industry because it's being done by a little bit of a, of all these different kind of ABC soup of, of agencies. And this would kind of put it all in one place and allow, you know, I, I kind of seen this that the traffic enforcement by the MWP, NYPD, and we really see this at the base of the bridges where they're, where they're telling people they can't go over the bridges on a moped, I really think is a symptom of the lack of cohesion that we have around this issue yeah. where NYPD doesn't really know what to do. So they're just handing out tickets to what they've seen as an infringement or what they see as, you know, um, not suitable for the streets. I think it's a kind of sign that we don't know how we're really handling this problem as a city. And we should acknowledge that a lot of people might oppose more enforcement because yes. we know who's going to get enforced upon more than other people. And, 
you know, force contact uh, for otherwise law-abiding people with the criminal justice system, and then it's a slippery slope from there. Yes. But sometimes I wonder these days about some of the safe streets advocates. Like in the pre-e-bike era, they were for pedestrian and bike safety versus cars, and that was relatively simple. Now they seem sometimes to be micro-mobility advocates, even though those um, vehicles are motor vehicles and pedestrians call the show all the time feeling unsafe from them. Do you have a comment on the politics of this? Brian, you touched upon what I think is one of the most contentious heated debates right now in the trans community where I think it does really divide people. Uh, I've had friends argue this over beers at a bar about what to do about the Queensboro Bridge, which is the most crowded bike lane in New York City. I truly mm. believe so. Uh, do you crack down? Do you do you widen the bike lane? Do you um, regulate the vehicles? What do you kind of do there? And I think this is something that um, the transit community is really kind of thinking through and trying to figure out what's the kind of position there. Um, what I'll just kind of say to that point is that I think everyone agrees that the current system is just so fragmented and, and needs to be improved. Uh, I was I kind of got that sense, you know, when I'm actually talking to cyclists, uh, just like the the caller who just called in, you know, I did a story about how crowded the the the, the bridges are getting and how crowded bike lanes are getting. And I was mm -hmm. so surprised talking to cyclists who you would think would be the most kind of, you know, cycling minded and uh, street design minded. Uh, who were all were like, this is a really annoying issue, how much I'm getting overtaken by mopeds and e-bikes, how I feel so unsafe. So, you know, the kind of rank and file cyclist is talking about this all the time. And that might sound different than what the trans advocates are talking about. I think there is a disconnect there that needs to be figured out. And we will leave it there. We will not solve the streets of New York today, but hopefully <laughs> some insight time. and some good discussion. Thank you, listeners, callers and texters. And thanks to John Sirico, journalist, teacher, and researcher who focuses on issues of mobility, sustainability, and open space. Among other things, he's a regular contributor to Bloomberg City Lab and an adjunct professor at NYU's Arthur L. Carter Journalism Institute and writes a newsletter called Street Beat. Thanks a lot, John. Really appreciate the conversation. Thanks so much. Brian Lehrer on WNYC, now Dr. Uche Blackstock. Some of you know she was a guest on this show multiple times during the height of the pandemic to talk about the disparate impact of COVID and what to do about that as a physician and as founder of the group Advancing Health Equity. Now Dr. Blackstock has a book which is about fighting racism in medicine as well as her personal story. I didn't realize until now that Dr. Blackstock and her mother became the first black mother and daughter pair to both attend Harvard Medical School. The book is called Legacy, A Black Physician Reckons with Racism in Medicine. Dr. Blackstock, always great to have you on the show. Welcome back to WNYC. Hi, Brian. Thank you so much for having me back. And I'll just add, actually, you know, I have a twin sister, Oni, who also went to Harvard Medical School with me. So Oni, my mother and I, we all are the first black mother-daughter legacy from Harvard Medical School. Ha. Huh. Would you like to talk a little bit about your mother's journey first, like what kind of conditions she grew up in and how she came to be a doctor and a Harvard Med School grad? Yes, it would it would be an honor. My mother, you know, we refer to her as the original 
Dr. Blackstock, and she grew up not far from where I live now. Um, she grew up in central Brooklyn, Crown Heights, um, born to a single mother. Uh, she was raised on public assistance. She had five siblings. She had a very, very challenging childhood. Um, there was a lot of housing insecurity. They were moving around a lot. She was changing schools often, often also having to worry about where the next meal would come from. But my mother was very, very uh, determined, uh, had a strong interest in science and also a strong work ethic. And she ended up actually at Brooklyn College. She was the first person in her family to finish college. And it was at Brooklyn College that she had a chemistry professor, a black man who encouraged her to apply to medical school. And she did and got into all of her medical schools and ended up matriculating at Harvard Medical School. What kind of practice did she have? So so, so after Harvard Med, she actually came back to New York City, trained at Harlem Hospital in internal medicine, and then did a nephrology fellowship. So nephrology is the study of the kidneys um, at Brookdale Hospital, which is in the East New York section of Brooklyn. And so she was a nephrologist because as some of your listeners may or may not know, there are very high rates of kidney disease in Black communities as a result of systemic racism. And she worked for many, many years at SUNY Downstate and Kings County Hospital. And you and your sister Oni are now MDs yourselves, as you said, both of you. Did you always want to be a doctor because of your mom? Yes. Yes. I mean, not only was she just such an incredible inspiration, I also think the message that she taught us that, you know, you can grow up in these environments that are very, very difficult and have these opportunities to go to a place like Harvard. And then actually you can come back. <laughs> you can come back to your community to care for your your friends and neighbors, um, to work in service to them. So, you know, I actually grew up thinking most physicians were black women because my mother <laughs> was, the, was the, I know, I know, was the president of the Dr. Su Susan Stewart McKinney Society. She was the first Black woman to earn an MD in New York State. Um, and so my mother actually worked with a group of Black women physicians when I was a child to do work in the community, to hold community health fairs, to do diabetes screenings and high blood pressure screenings. And so I would go with my mother to these fairs. I would go with her to these meetings with these other Black women physicians. My own pediatrician was a Black woman. So I didn't realize until I was much, much older that my experience was very rare and that I thought, as I said, I thought most physicians were Black and that they were Black women. Um, but that was my inspiration, like seeing these brilliant, dedicated women work in our communities um, on behalf of our communities. That was the inspiration that both Oni, you know, my twin sister, and I needed to really to propel us to also become physicians. And I saw the stat that only 2%, 2% of U.S. physicians are black women. It would have to be three or four times that just to be proportional with the general population. Does the title of the book, Legacy, have a double meaning pertaining to you and your mom and pertaining to racism in medicine? Yes, yes. It's, yes, so definitely there's that, there's that double meaning. You know, as your listeners may know or may not know that, you know, our mom ended up um, being diagnosed with acute myelogenous leukemia 
when Oni and I, um, were, we were in college, we were sophomores and she died after our sophomore year at the age of 47. She was so young. Um, but by then she really had made a tremendous impact on us. And so part of it is not just this legacy from Harvard Medical School, which we can talk a little bit more about because it's, it's this idea of, you know, black exceptionalism that, you know, I'm, I'm very immensely proud of, but I also recognize that there are so many other people like my mother who could have made it to Harvard Medical School, but did not because of systemic racism and because of poverty, um, but also this legacy of my sister and I being able to carry on our mother's, essentially her health equity advocacy work. Um, health equity is a kind of a newer term, but the work that my mother and these black women physicians were doing in our communities in the 80s and 90s, that was health equity work. Um, the other meaning of legacy is this rather horrific, and we're gonna be, I'll be very transparent and honest about this, legacy of medical racism that is deeply, deeply rooted in our country's history that's based in um, based in slavery, um, that's based in Jim Crow, that's based in this idea that Black people are somehow biologically different than people of other races. And a lot of those myths and notions have actually, unfortunately, been perpetuated over the last several centuries and today actually impact how black people receive care and those factors are implicated in the actually the worsening racial health inequities that we see today so brian despite you know there being advances in innovation technology and research we are still seeing today in 2024 worsening of health outcomes for black people so I know people have heard of like the black maternal mortality crisis, right? right? Um, Brian, myself with my Harvard college and medical school degree, I'm still five times more likely to die of pregnancy related complications than my white peers. Why and would, you have to, why would right. that be? Can you unpack that a little bit for our listeners? Yes. You with your, with your education, with the fact that you're a practicing doctor, you would be very knowledgeable about, you know, how to go through pregnancy and childbirth. Would, would, the stati would, the, would your risk really be that much higher than a white woman in America, you individually? Yeah. Yes. And so to unpack that a little bit, um, you know, I know people have heard of these, you know, um, more famous affluent black women like Serena Williams, who also you know, talked publicly about being diagnosed with or having symptoms of a blood clot in her lungs and speaking to her medical team, saying that I'm having these symptoms and they didn't even listen to her. You know, the, one of the greatest athletes of all time. And so what we see from the data and we and we see it anecdotally, too. But, you know, people always want the data. You know, we, we see the data that often in healthcare interactions that Black patients are often not listened to, um, their concerns are minimized, ignored, or dismissed. Um, and we see, we see that often leads to delayed diagnoses, misdiagnoses, harm, or even death. So, so there's that whole issue of Black patients just not being listened to. There's also this other issue of the impact of everyday racism that professional status, educational level, does socioeconomic status does isn't does not protect black people from. That there is this something that Arlene Geronimus, the public health researcher, 
um, has written about this idea of weathering, the chronic wear and tear on our bodies as a result of living with everyday racism, interpersonal and systemic, mm -hmm. that even you know, even someone like me, I am not protected from. And that wears down the body, it ages the body prematurely, so that when we, you know, when a black birthing person like me, when I, when I get, pre when I become pregnant, I am placed at a higher risk. You know, we also see that black people in this country, we have some of the shortest life expectancies. We, we die prematurely in this country. And that's just not, it's not just about what happens when we interface with the healthcare establishment. We know that systemic racism also impacts other social institutions like education, employment, um, access to healthy foods, access to green space. All of those are what we call the social determinants of health. And we know that system, systemic racism is a driving factor for those. So what we are seeing in these statistics, right, these horrible statistics that Black people, like Black men have the shortest life expectancy, that Black babies are still more than twice as likely as white babies to die in their first year of life, which, Brian, is a wider disparity now than 15 years before the end of slavery, wow. is a result of- How could of that be? Yeah, result of. Okay, go ahead. yes. No, no, it's, it's a result of centuries of deeply embedded racism that has actually chronically deprived our communities. So, even me, I'm one generation removed from growing up on public assistance, right? We And we also know, Brian, there's a, there's something else that I wanted to share. I don't go into it too much in my book, but there's, there's a, a field of study called epigenetics. This idea that chronic stress, whether it be from living in poverty or living under systemic racism, it actually changes gene expression. So mm -hmm. while we know that race itself is a social construct, living with the stress of racism can actually influence gene expression. So we think that it's implicated in the high rates of diabetes among Black people, autoimmune disease, inflammatory diseases like heart disease or atherosclerosis. Um, we so and, and that essentially makes us sick. So Brian, living in this country for black people, it harms us. And we even see that in people who are black immigrants. When they first come to this country, they actually have health outcomes that are very similar to white Americans. But after one or two generations, their health outcomes actually worsen to the same level as black Americans. Listeners, I wonder if we have other black MDs listening right now who want to talk about racism in medicine and how to fix it with Dr. Uche Blackstock, 212-433-WNYC, or any black patients, that would be every person, <laughs> every, we're all patients right. sometimes, right. Um, right. with experiences or stories or policy proposals, uh, or anyone else for Dr. Uche Blackstock, whose new book is called Legacy, a black physician reckons with racism in medicine. Call or text 212-433-WNYC, 212-433-9692. I want people to know that part of the book describes a segregated hospital system as you witnessed and experienced it as a doctor between NYU's uh, Tisch Hospital and Bellevue, which is part of the New York City public hospital system. The hospitals are basically next door to each other on First Avenue in Manhattan around 30th Street there. What did you see? I know, Brian. And Brian, you know, this is something that I think, 
you know, all all health professionals working in these hospitals are aware of, but we, we don't talk or we haven't talked publicly about it. But it's the fact that you have two hospitals literally blocks apart next door to each other where the level of resources, um, the level of even sometimes care is so profoundly different. And so, for example, in the Bellevue ER, we see mostly people of color. We see mostly immigrants, people who are uninsured or underinsured. And we see people waiting very, very long times to be seen. We see just be seen by a health professional. We also see them waiting a very long time for follow-up appointments, right? We I also noticed, and, and this is something that is an informal practice that our, you know, our our EMS workers often, they would bring certain types of patients to the Bellevue ER and not bring those to the Tish ER. And because if they brought, for example, a patient that was intoxicated or unhoused to the NYU ER, they would be reprimanded by the staff, right? So that is sort of like mm. this kind of two-tier system of how we're treating patients. But at NYU ER, <clears throat> excuse me, at the NYU ER, we had mostly people who, they were mostly white, they were mostly insured, um, better staffing, more specialists there, quicker follow-up, more resources. And then obviously there's, there's the whole issue that I write about and that actually has been written about more extensively in the New York Times about these nonprofit hospitals like NYU that have disparate care for like for VIP patients, where VIP patients get a whole other level of care where you get, you know, when I was working in the ER, I would receive multiple calls if I was the head ER doc, if a VIP patient was coming in, you know, they would get a right. room immediately, I would have to call all of their specialists, they would get admitted to the hospital much quicker than other patients. What's so, the path to more equity in the hospital system, then is it a Bernie Sanders or a Canadian style single payer system in America, or is it more complicated than that? No, I, I mean, actually, Brian, and, and it's something that I write about in the book. I am for Medicare for all, um, a single, single payer um, universal health care system. The reason why is because we, we see that, like, literally, Brian, we are one of the only high income countries that has the very worst health outcomes, and we spend the most on health care. And that's because we have a for-profit decentralized system of how we um, how we arrange healthcare, um, and I don't think I don't think healthcare should be for profit. I think health healthcare should be a human right, <clears throat> and I think that um, we need to really look at how poorly Americans are doing um, in the current system, health wise, and, and it's not just black people and people of color, all Americans are doing poorly. Um, during the pandemic, we actually had a decrease in life expectancy and high other high income countries did as well. However, those countries have been able to um, recover and their life expectancy has begun to increase again. In the United States, our life expectancy continues to decline and that is for everyone of every single racial demographic group. We're seeing, you know, increase in suicide, increase in, in overdoses. You know, we've had the most number of deaths from COVID. We are not doing well as a, as a country. And I always say that when we have policies that are inequitable, 
you know, so for example, like employer-sponsored health insurance, we know that people who are service workers who are disproportionately Black and other people of color, um, that they are often in jobs that don't offer them health insurance, that don't offer them paid family and sick leave. So we need to think about health in all policies. And part of that, I strongly believe, is single-payer universal health care. We'll continue in a minute with Dr. Uche Blackstock. Uh, you know, at this point in the show, we often invite different groups of people with different life experiences to call in on different kinds of things. Uh, a little while ago, I gave an explicit invitation to other black health professionals, MDs, and we have folks calling in uh, to dialogue with Dr. Blackstock. So we'll take those calls and continue with Dr. Uche Blackstock, author now of Legacy, A Black Physician Reckons with Racism in Medicine, right after this. Brian Lehrer on WNYC with Dr. Uche Blackstock, founder of Advancing Health Equity and author now of Legacy, A Black Physician Reckons with Racism in Medicine. And Leslie in Central Jersey, you're on WNYC with Dr. Blackstock. Hi, Leslie. Hi, Brian. And hi, Dr. Blackstock. I just want to say I'm a regular listener And for Dr. Blackstock, I've been following both you and your sister, and I just want to say I'm in awe of you both, and thank you for your service to the community. I called in because you asked, uh, I am a black uh, female physician um, practicing and living in central New Jersey, and we live with microaggressions and macroaggressions on a regular basis in my um, hospital, in addition to uh, interacting with patients and obviously providing the best care that I can, I I see a bit of doubt um, about my credentials. Um, Will will they be safe around me or taking my advice or what have you? The most difficult thing I, I would say, though, is my interaction with colleagues who may um, doubt my credentials or um, we have a residency program where I've had residents interrupt me while I'm speaking to patients or um, I've overheard my uh, physician colleagues discuss patient care and they lack the type of empathy that we are taught to uh, show toward Mm -hmm. our patients. Let me let me jump in. We put a lot of very specific things on the table, and I want to get a couple of other calls on in our remaining time. But Dr. Blackstock, talk to Leslie. No, I mean Leslie. I or Dr. Leslie, I completely um, empathize with you. Um, you know, these are experiences that I think you know we all go through. That I write about in the book. That I was. I, I've never been asked so much by my patients, especially when I was at, at Tisch, by white patients, like, where did I go to medical school? And where did I train or about my educational pedigree? And so what I would say is it's these environments are so very, very difficult for us. Like we, we want to stay in them. We feel like our presence is needed, but we kind of we get these, um, you know, these questions um, doubting our abilities from everyone, from our colleagues, from our patients, even from, you know, 
when I was in academic medicine, even my residents would give me a hard time in a way that I don't mm. think that they gave other attending physicians. And so part of what I write about is that uh, these institutions are very toxic to us and we need to hold them accountable for how we are treated. Um, as Black health professionals, we need to be environments where we can thrive and not just survive. And right now, we are not there yet. Leslie, thank you. Please call us again. Here's another doctor, Donald in Brooklyn. Hello, Dr. Donald. You're on WNYC. Hi, I'm Dr. Donald Moore, friend of the Blackstock family, <laughs> and I've been around uh, uh, in practice and in Brooklyn for over 35 years. So uh, I want to thank Uche for writing the book that I was planning to write. And uh, <laughs> I think the term legacy, you know, hits so many chords for so many of us. I think the important part that she has mentioned and uh, expressed so eloquently in her book, the whole scientific racism, and of course, the other aspect of it is the medical apartheid, which uh, we are still experiencing as physicians. I want to make a point that, uh, I want to highlight a point that Uche uh, uh, touches on on her book. Uh, she talks about her mother going to Harvard way back in the 70s, 80s. I went to Harvard for the same program her mother went to, Health Career Summer Program. That was a consequence of affirmative action. That's how yes. her mother got there. That's how her mother got back to Brooklyn and contributed and created these two wonderful doctors. So I want to shout out to her. Uh, let her uh, just uh, point out that she's doing the right thing. And, um, you know, I, I think it's great. Dr. Blackstock, uh, you know Dr. this guy? Yes, yes, Dr. Moore. <laughs> I've, I've known him since I was a child. And Dr. Aww. Moore, you're, you're, you made me very teary just, you know, in what you said. And thank you for emphasizing that. And Dr. Moore also knew my mother very, very well. Um, it can speak to how wonderful she was. But it's true. And, and, and you know, I, I had a Washington Post um, excerpt of my book last week where we talked about, you know, the, the, this Flexner report, the report that um, closed five out of seven of the Black medical schools in 1910. And that has led to what's estimated an erasure of between 25 and 35,000 Black physicians. And I actually drew a parallel to that in the recent SCOTUS decision on race conscious admissions and how it could have a similar ripple effect. You know, affirmative action, I'm very proud to say, has impacted me and my family. It's helped us do the work that we can do. I'm very, very proud to say that um, it's a policy that is needed in a reparative way. Um, but we also have to look at what's what's happening currently, these anti-DEI anti measures, um, the SCOTUS uh, decision, as I mentioned, because it is going to impact who gets into medical school, who gets into college to study pre-med. And it can ultimately have that same ripple effect that the Flexner report had in 1910, which has led to, you know, again, this erasure of black physicians who could have cared for hundreds of thousands of black patients who could have mentored black students and trainees and who could have done research on behalf of black communities um, and health. So I'm so glad that Dr. Moore mentioned that my mother benefited from 
these affirmative action programs, this pre-health program that she was in before matriculating into Harvard Medical School and Dr. Moore did as well. And Dr. Moore, I am so grateful for you and all the service that you've provided to our community over the last 35 years in Brooklyn. We've got two minutes left in the segment and in the show. Um, maybe you want to talk about what the heart of your work is at the organization that you founded, Advancing Health Equity, and the fact that you left the medical system uh, as it exists to, to found this and, and where yes. that leaves doctors who are still working within the system. I know. Brian, thank you so much for that question. And I, I may get a little bit emotional answering it because I never thought that I would have to leave academic medicine. I thought that that was going to be where I would spend the rest of my career. But it 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 came it, be, it became very clear to me towards the end of my tenure um, at NYU that I could not stay. That it was because of racism and sexism. I was being silenced and muzzled in my DI role, and I, I realized I had to leave in order to do the work that I wanted to do authentically. So, um, and I realized that all academic institutions are like that to some degree. So I, I founded Advancing Health Equity. It'll be five years old in March um, to work with healthcare organizations and institutions that actually want to do the work. We started out with trainings around health equity and anti-racism, but we know trainings are not sufficient. We go in and we do interviews with leadership, um, focus groups with staff. Um, leadership coaching. We help them plan strategy around health equity so that we can build more diverse, inclusive workplaces in those organizations, and also to ensure that the care they are delivering to Black patients and other patients of color is quality and equitable. So I feel like through advancing health equity, I can now do the work that I've always wanted to do um, and to do it in an authentic way, which often these organizations don't allow us to do it in. And I'm not saying, you know, I write in my, at the end of the book, it's a call to action to different groups. And I write to black health professionals, to black physicians. I say, I'm not telling you to leave academic medicine. You know, you have to do what is right for you. I knew that leaving was the right decision for me, even though I initially felt guilty about it because I was leaving our students. But what I realized in the long term is that I was providing them with another vision for a pathway that they could take to making a difference in our communities. And you got it in just under the wire. <laughs> and thank you for that heartfelt answer and call to action and for the book and all also for all your previous appearances here during the pandemic when you were so helpful to so many people. Dr. Ushe Blackstock, her new book is called Legacy, A Black Physician Reckons with Racism in Medicine. Thanks so much. And, and, and Brian, thank you so much for having me. You are a treasure. It's the Brian Lehrer Show on WNYC. Good morning again, everyone. And now we turn to our climate story of the week, which we do every Tuesday on the show. On Friday, the Biden administration paused a decision on whether or not to approve what would be the largest natural gas export terminal in the United States. Instead, it has directed the Energy Department to evaluate the project's impact on climate change first. The proposed terminal called Kalkashu Pass 2, or CP2, 
is being planned for the Louisiana coastline. If approved, it would involve bringing gas extracted via fracking through a new pipeline. At the terminal, the gas would be condensed into liquid, chilled, and sent to markets around the world. Now, climate activists are referring to the terminal as a carbon megabomb. The Guardian, Guardian reports it would ship up to 24 million tons of liquefied natural gas, or LNG, each year once built. The department has never before rejected a proposed natural gas project on these grounds, and there are 16 other proposed terminals which might face the same fate. So this policy decision, one way or another, is a very big deal. And in fact, for a country, the United States, which is now the largest liquid natural gas exporter in the world, climate activists are lauding the Biden administration's new position as victory. Others see, others see it as Biden's way to appease climate activists while not really changing that much. But joining us now to break down the Biden administration's pause on natural gas export at CP2, as well as the environmental, political, and economic implications, is Robinson Meyer, founding executive director of Heatmap, a relatively new climate-focused media company. Hey, Robinson, welcome back to WNYC. Hey, Brian, thanks for having me. So we're going to get granular on both the natural gas export industry in the U.S., <laughs> which a lot of listeners know very little about, and why the Biden administration is pausing this terminal now. Uh, but first, as I said, since our focus is climate, activists have called this project a carbon megabomb. Can you explain just the scope of this terminal and what some fear the environmental impact might be? Yeah, absolutely. So CP2 itself um, was going to export about or is is proposed to export about 20 million tons per year of liquid natural gas, which would be about 20 percent of uh, which would increase like U.S. liquid natural gas exports at their current rate by 20 percent. By the time CP2 would be built, it would actually um U.S. exports will be much higher than they are now because there's just already locked in growth into the system. There's already terminals that are basically have mostly been built and are just waiting to open. But it would represent a major expansion of U.S. liquid natural gas capacity. And I think there's really two things that I would call out about it. The first is that CP2 just by itself is a very pollution intensive proposal. Um, it would emit just at the just from the site itself about two coal plants worth of carbon pollution and in fact be the second most carbon pollution facility of any kind in louisiana hmm. um, i think the second thing is that cb2 is really just part of a wave of um proposed new liquid natural gas export terminals that are slated to come online across the Gulf Coast. And I should add that while this announcement initially was that the uh, Biden administration would pause CP2's proposal by itself, what it has done since then is actually pause all pending applications to the Department of Energy for new liquid natural gas export terminals um, to review th their impact on the climate and and how much basically how much U.S. liquid natural gas exports should increase what that would mean for the climate how we should think about it so on. yeah so this is this is a big deal decision by the Biden administration let me ask you to give our listeners some of the economic context here because you're right although the United States only began exporting liquefied natural gas in 2016. It is now the world's top exporter 
of the fossil fuels, uh, of that fossil fuel. So for people who might not know, can you give us a bit of background on how new this is at all? I mean, 2016, it's like yesterday. Yeah. Uh, and how the U.S. became the biggest exporter of this energy source? Yeah, absolutely. So I think it makes sense, actually, to go back to the mid-2000s, because back in the mid-2000s, when energy planners and experts and engineers were looking at what fossil fuels the U.S. had and, and what it was believed to have, they, they actually thought the U.S. was about to run out of natural gas. And there was this concern kind of through the late Bush administration that the U.S. would soon not have natural gas. We have a very natural, we had a very natural gas intensive energy system already. People use it to heat their homes in New York, you know, in, certainly in New Jersey, where I'm from. Um, but they, and, and the concern was that we were going to run out of domestic natural gas to mine. And so there were started to be, companies started to build natural gas import terminals along the Gulf Coast. And it was kind of a new thing. At that point, Japan had really been the first country to experiment with importing or exporting liquid importing rather liquefied natural gas and the idea that the US would import liquefied natural gas was was very strange but companies started to invest in these big facilities then in the late 2000s fracking happened and we discovered that there were enormous quantities of natural gas that were previously not thought to be economical to extract that were now completely accessible and in fact very cheap and the U.S. went from believing it would have a shortage of natural gas to realizing that it would have a surplus. In fact, so much that we could kind of burn natural gas for centuries and it would be fine. That would be disastrous for the climate, obviously, but mm -hmm. economically it's there to mm -hmm. consume. And so those companies that had built these natural gas import terminals along the Gulf Coast, many of them retrofitted to being natural gas export terminals because suddenly now there was a surplus of natural gas. And the first one of those opened in 2016. And since then, uh, trade has really expanded enormously, and it really picked up after Russia um, began throttling natural gas exports to Europe in the run up to what we now know was the invasion of Ukraine. And then after the invasion of Ukraine itself, um, Russia was messing with its its exports, to, uh, its natural gas exports to Europe in such a way that really messed up prices within Europe and, and the U.S. kind of wound up uh stepping into that breach and, and expanding exports as much as it could to support the european economy so a lot of it is going to europe some of it is because of the russia ukraine war that's really interesting talk more then about the potential environmental impact of this industry expanding even more in the united states because natural gas some people may remember, has long been touted as cleaner than other types of fossil fuels, at least. For example, um, we saw the U.S. Energy Information Agency, so part of the federal government, uh, put it yeah. this way on their website, burning natural gas for energy results in fewer emissions of nearly all types of air pollutants and carbon dioxide than burning coal or petroleum products to produce an equal amount of energy, I guess, than burning those products. But new reports are saying that this natural gas terminal could actually be worse than coal, and you were putting it somewhat in that context before. So what are the climate experts claiming if this were really to expand further as an industry in the United States and there were to be, you know, this dozen and more new uh, liquid national natural gas exporting facilities that are on the docket? 
so it's it's the kind of whole to to do the whole math here i think is really complicated so i'm going to try to kind of build it one by one so i think the um at just a root level natural gas emits less greenhouse gas pollution than coal if you just have a unit of natural gas there in your laboratory and a unit of coal and you burn them you're going to get less carbon from the natural gas there'll be less carbon pollution less greenhouse gas emissions from the natural gas for the same amount of energy that's exactly right and i think generally over the past two decades as we've realized there's this surplus of natural gas in the united states in our domestic electricity grid in the u.s power generating system that huge amount of cheap natural gas has really driven out coal from the system. It has basically gone and replaced all, we've replaced all these coal plants with natural gas plants. They produce electricity more cheaply and with fewer carbon emissions. And that has been actually the primary driver of America's decrease in greenhouse gas emissions over the past 10, 15 years. And so domestically, we tend to think of natural gas as Yes, being cleaner than coal. Recently, there have been a series of studies that I should add have not been published in a scientific journal. There's really two big studies, and or even one, and it claims that natural gas as a system might be more damaging than, than burning coal. That in fact, if you look at the entire system that we use to extract natural gas from the ground, move it across the territory through pipelines, store it, uh, compress it maybe, get it ready to burn, uh, get it ready for export, move it on ships across the ocean. If you look at that whole system, this one study by a scientist named Robert Howarth, he alleges that it is so leaky, that system is so leaky across the board that, that natural gas is 24 times worse than coal. In fact, he says if you look at the absolute worst case scenario, it's almost 300 times worse than coal for the climate. Now, I should add, this study hasn't been published in a scientific journal, and there's a lot of disagreement about how exactly you should interpret this math, You know, how Earth really takes warming that happens in the next 10 or 20 years to much more seriously than warming that happens you know, in the next century. Other climate scientists disagree with that way of weighting emissions. But the basic issue is that natural gas itself uh, contains methane, or mostly is methane. Um, methane is a greenhouse gas itself. It actually, on a short-term level, is far worse for the climate. It traps more heat at a very short-term level than carbon dioxide does. And so if you have this leaky system and it emits a lot of natural gas unburned into the air, then that would be very bad for the climate. And so what this recent campaign against liquid natural gas export terminals has been about uh, among climate activists has been they say, look at this study, natural gas is way worse than we thought. And it's especially way worse if you look at it as, as this global liquefied natural gas system. And therefore, we need to shut it down right now. Has the boom in liquefied natural gas production in the United States made us energy independent or let's say extremely less dependent on countries like Saudi Arabia. You know, a lot of people, especially now, are looking for the U.S. Uh, to be less dependent on anything involving us in the Middle East than we have yeah. been in the past. It definitely has. And I think that is what is so interesting about this decision and, and what is um, 
so what produces so many of the different ways of thinking about this decision in a way uh i first of all the the america's ability to export a lot of natural gas has been a very big deal during the ukraine war it definitely helped the european economy that that natural gas was there to be directed to to help europe now climate activists would say yes this natural gas may have been helpful to europe in the past um year or two, but Europe is going to be able to solve its problems with clean energy going forward. They don't really need our gas, you know, five years from now, 10 years from now, what they certainly don't need is an increase in export capacity. Right now, the other major exporter of liquefied natural gas is Qatar. And I think what a lot of this, what US natural gas exports do is they if if we're not selling a country gas, probably Qatar will. Um, if we're both selling a lot of gas, maybe countries that we're not planning on building gas import capacity may build gas import capacity. Mm -hmm. So it's very hazy how this works out. I think it absolutely has led to the U.S. energy system being less coupled to oil prices. And so there's ways for us to generate energy that don't directly rely on Saudi Arabia or OPEC. I, there's another dynamic that people sometimes bring up, which is the more export capacity for natural gas that we build in the U.S., the more coupled U.S. domestic gas prices and the global price for natural gas become because these markets become more and more related, right? Uh, by Potentially by 2027, we'll be exporting about 20% of all natural gas we extract in the United States. That could lead to natural gas prices in the U.S. getting higher. And that, even though that would give the U.S. a lot of leverage and kind of energy global geopolitics, it would actually right. maybe decrease our independence by raising right. costs for consumers. Because U.S. consumers would be competing with the consumers that the companies want to ship to abroad exactly. to make more of a profit. Exactly. Uh, so I hear the complexity there. And I wonder if you think politically um, that this is going to become an issue in the presidential race this year with Biden now putting on pause this liquid natural gas exporting facility in Louisiana and possibly many more that the industry would like to build. We know Trump is already running on drill, baby, drill. Remember, Trump said he would be a dictator, but only on day one, and to do two things, close the border and drill, baby, drill. And you don't have to be Donald Trump to be a Republican who's taken this position. Here's Senator Mitch McConnell on the Senate floor last Wednesday on Biden's decision to pause this export facility. This move would amount to a functional ban on new LNG export permits. The administration's war on affordability, affordable domestic energy has been bad news for American workers and consumers alike. Almost awake for the day there, Mitch McConnell, uh, who is saying the administration's war on affordable domestic energy has been bad news for American workers and consumers alike, if he was too marble mouth for you to understand the words in the clip. Uh, and, then, and then later, McConnell said it was liquid natural gas exports from the United States that allowed Europe to reduce its reliance on Russian energy in the wake of their attack on Ukraine. So if the Biden administration is foolish enough to shut down our exports or saddle their national interest analysis with Green New Deal schemes, I hope they understand which nation's interests they're advancing. 
meaning Russia. Um, so do you see this as a big presidential issue this year? I do. I do. I think it's I think it's actually the main way to understand this move is maybe as a piece of presidential politics um, huh. and presidential you know, election politics from the Biden campaign side. What I think Biden officials and Biden campaign workers and, and the president himself have noticed is that uh, despite passing several laws that are going to advance U.S. decarbonization, you know, first and foremost, the Inflation Reduction Act, that news has just not broken through among younger voters. Younger voters uh, don't seem to have realized the extent uh, or maybe they don't believe the extent to which the Inflation Reduction Act and, and other recent laws and actions by the Biden administration will reduce U.S. emissions. And younger voters are quite angry at the president for uh, a substantive reason for his for his how he has uh, for the Israel-Gaza war. Um, and they know third, <laughs> the Biden administration knows third, that when the Biden administration uh, approved the Willow Pipeline through Alaska, that was seen as a great betrayal by climate activists and by young voters. In fact, it seems like the Willow Pipeline approval, which is this big oil pipeline in uh, in Alaska that the administration approved last year, seems to have broken through way more than the Inflation Reduction Act ever did. And by putting these uh, natural gas terminals on pause, um, the Biden administration seems to think that it can kind of hold off another betrayal story, that it can show that it is interested not only in ex expanding clean energy, but in slowing the growth of fossil fuels. On the Trump administration side, uh, Donald Trump actually promised this weekend that if he took office, he would unpause this pause. He would restart the approval of these of these projects and would try to expand U.S. liquid oh, natural gas export. So capacity. he did get to it specifically uh, yeah. already. I want to get one caller on here who I think is going to say we can have the best of both worlds. We can have the benefits of liquid natural gas, but still crack down on its potential climate harms. Mark in eastern New York, you're on WNYC. Hi, Mark. Uh, hello, Brian. Uh, it's a very simple thing that I have to say. Uh, methane is far is a terrible uh, greenhouse gas if it gets in the atmosphere, but it doesn't have to get in the atmosphere if you fix the leaks. The leaks are the problem. What we just need is to fix the leaks so that we keep the methane natural gas in the pipes and and in and, and in the liquid form and in the ships. Don't let it get out into the air. Mark, thank you. Uh, are engineers saying that Mark's fix is possible or not possible, or have you heard that proposal before? Not only is it possible, the U.S. is doing it. And I think this sits at a really interesting angle to the claim by climate activists that natural gas may be much more polluting than we previously think. So the EPA has just implemented new regulations uh, limiting leaks from natural gas pipelines, from natural gas facilities. It is a major, it will result in major, major reductions of these leaks uh, in the U.S. And Congress has actually backed up that regulation with penalties. So if you don't comply with the regulation and you're still leaky, you have to pay a tax on the amount of methane that you leak into the air. What some activists, I think, would retort is that, yes, we will have that regulation. We will be monitoring 
liquid natural gas in the U.S. However, once you export natural gas, sometimes the ships on which you export it are quite leaky themselves. Uh, sometimes the terminals that you export it into or the pipelines that you where you take the natural gas can be themselves leaky. And so there is still leaks somewhere in the system. But I actually do think the caller, I, I think the caller is a great point. And I think this is an aspect of the uh, of this claim by climate activists that I'm hoping Heatmap, where I work, the, the climate site that I work, heatmap.news, you can find us, we'll be able to drill into this more because at the one hand, we're understanding just how dangerous these leaks are. On the other hand, we are regulating these methane leaks way more now, and we're about to regulate them way more than we ever have before. And how those two assessments, how that assessment and how this new regulation fit together, I think no one's quite squared the circle on yet. And there we leave it with Robinson Meyer, founding executive editor of the climate-focused news organization Heatmap, uh, primer for many of you who weren't familiar with this issue on what is a very important issue, how much liquid natural gas, which the U.S. has become so dependent on and made so much money from, but has such climate implications, how much should the Biden administration pause or halt the development of export capacity? He did put one major facility on pause, and that is now drawing a reaction from Trump and other Republicans in part of the presidential election year debate. And that's our climate story of the week. Robinson, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me as always. Thanks for listening to Brian Lehrer Weekend. We're back on the radio Monday morning at 10 a.m. In the meantime, follow us on Twitter at Brian Lehrer or Facebook.com slash Brian Lehrer WNYC, where there's always a conversation 24-7.